episode 44 of the More Than Books podcast. Today we are doing a Valentine's Day special. So we're going to be talking about some of our favorite couples from young adult media. So that could be books, TV shows, or in my case, anime. I am going to be talking about my favorite manga couple, I'm going to be talking about Sailor Moon and Tuxedo Mask, otherwise known as Usagi and Mamoru. Don't you mean Darian? They don't talk about the four (laughs) kids version. That does not exist in the realm of this universe. Whatever you say. Uh Uh-huh. And, um, Sierra... Who are you going to be talking about today? I am going to be talking about... I'm not going to be talking about a couple. I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite relationships from the way-too-long Shadowhunter Chronicles by Cassandra Clare. They're specifically from the trilogy The Dark Artifices, and they're known as... Their ship name, at least, is Kira Katina, which consists of Kieran, Mark Blackthorne, and Christina Rosales. Sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and I will be talking about Percy Jackson and Annabeth Chase from the Olympians series. Yes, and thank you for joining us today, <laughs> Haley. We really do appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, you might be wondering who that random voice is. <laughs> Introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Haley Work, and I am a circulation clerk here at Bellevue University. So, welcome, Haley. <laughs> welcome. All right, so to start... So Sailor Moon and Tuxedo Mask, they are probably my favorite couple growing up. I was introduced to them at the age of six, and I was obsessed ever since. The interesting part about their story is their story spans millennia. So it starts with the Moon Kingdom, a thousand years in the past. Both of them are tragically killed, and so then they're reincarnated into modern-day 1990s Tokyo. And by tragically killed, you mean uh, Endymion got killed, and then Sailor Moon decided to off herself in her grief. Yep. Very traumatic scene. But yes, he does get slain in battle, and in her grief, as all these bodies are like just floating in space for some reason because the anti-gravity field or something just vanished. I don't know. It's not really explained why all of a sudden everybody's floating in space when originally there was gravity and they were walking on the surface of the moon. But he's tragically slain and she just kind of jumps in after him and then gets killed as a result. So, but then they meet thousand years later, they don't recognize each other. Tuxedo Mask is now a 16-year-old by the name of Mamoru, and Sailor Moon is now a 14-year-old middle school student by the name of Usagi. When they meet, it's, it's not pretty. He likes to taunt her, make fun of her. Uh, he'll make fun of her hairstyle, call her ugly all sorts of just nasty things, and she gives as good as she gets, I will say that, but they're a little bit more childish, and basically this weird love-hate relationship thing starts, 
but then they start to get their memories from their past lives and things just kind of change from there. And then um, throughout pretty much the rest of the series, there's a lot of scenes where they're out on a date and it's very nice and it's great. And then some weird curveball throws into the mix. The most notable one is when their daughter from the future crashes their date. And, and then tries to hook up with her dad. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> um, it is it is really weird. Um, she doesn't recognize them as her future parents because they are vastly different from their future counterparts. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. I will admit that throughout the entirety of their relationship, pretty much no matter what happens, whether Tuxedo Mask gets kidnapped again or whether she's crying on the floor dramatically in the middle of battle, they always seem to be kind of pulled together and they always seem to find each other. And this is really exemplified in the season that actually never aired or um, was published in the United States, but there is a part of the series where you find out that uh, Tuxedo Mask has been dead for almost a year and Sailor Moon kind of like she has this feeling that something's wrong but she can't really pinpoint it and so that moment when she finds out that he um, is actually dead becomes a pivotal moment and what happens is she ends up using that grief to basically save the world actually the universe at that point and so it's her grief that gets through to uh, Sailor Galaxia, as she's known at that point, and basically allows them to restart the universe over. So, yeah, so their, their love literally ends the world, I think, on, like, three different occasions. So Maybe they should just see other people at this point. <laughs> but they're fated to be together that's the point fade in my butt if you kill everybody on the surface of the earth and the moon uh-uh not worth it all right so i will be talking on kirarktina but in order to understand them and how they came to be it's time to do a little deep dive into shadow hunter history so the dark artifices takes place five years after the end of the mortal Instruments series if you happen to be a fan of the series, or if you're just here to listen, I'm going to spoil you, so here's your warning. Three, two, one. Okay, so at the end of the Mortal Instruments series, the Fae essentially went back on their alliance with the Shadowhunters in the Dark War against Jonathan Morgenstern, and as they were on the losing side, they were essentially, yeah, they're forced essentially under several restrictions. And one of those was the trading of Fae children. So this really goes back to the Blackthorn family. The two eldest children of the Blackthorn family, Helen and Mark Blackthorn, are actually half Fae, half Shadowhunter. Essentially, since the Shadowhunters didn't really trust fairies, Helen was banished off to an institute in the far north, and Mark was essentially sent to 
be one of the wild hunt, a group of fae, according to myth, that went around to battlefields and collected the souls of the dying. Five years have passed, and we're at the beginning of the Dark Artifices, and mysterious deaths are starting to happen all over Los Angeles, which is where the Dark Artifices takes place, and so in teaming up with the fairies to help them to uncover the killer, they essentially send Mark back to his family as a gesture of goodwill. For the Blackthorn family, who have, you know, been, you know, on Earth, it's been five years. But time works differently in fairy. Far less time had passed for Mark. And so when he returns to his family, you know, his younger siblings, who when he left them were like 11, 12 years old, are now either, you know, teens or young adults. So it really was a difficult transition for him. He didn't really feel comfortable or welcomed back, you know, with his family and also with Emma Carstairs, who happens to be a very close friend of the family. But there was one person at the Institute who happened to essentially be visiting from a foreign institute who's there for a year, sort of as like a foreign exchange student. And she comes from the Mexico City Institute and her name was Christina Rosales. So when Mark first returned to the Los Angeles Institute, Christina was really the only person that he felt comfortable being around, as she was the only one who, prior to him leaving for the hunt, had no connection to him before, and as such didn't really have any expectations for him. In that sort of awkward time of transition, uh, she was sort of a lifeboat for him, a sanctuary where he wouldn't really feel judged or swayed to be anything other than he was. Because being sort of a half-breed, he was always sort of tugged between his fairy nature and his shadow hunter nature. And over the course of their budding friendship, feelings began to blossom. But this was complicated because during his time in the hunt, Mark had a fairy bay named Kieran. Uh, Kieran was sort of a bastard child of the Unseelie King. There are two courts in in the fairy realm, the Seelie and Unseelie court, and Kieran was, you know, just one of the younger bastard sons. And because of their natures, they were sort of ostracized uh, from the hunt. They naturally, over the course, you know, of their time in the hunt, they naturally grew together. They never judged one another, and um, Kieran really helped Mark to embrace his fairy heritage, because as, you know, before him being in the hunt, he was raised by shadow hunters, and so he only really was acquainted with that side of himself. Yes, and here is a quote that sort of really encapsulates sort of the nature of their dynamic. Kieran had given Mark back his humanity through the grace of ordinary affection, and now Mark did not know what he, how he would live without it. Things romantically began to become a little tumultuous when Mark was sent back to live with his, you know, shadow hunter family. Kieran is a very possessive kind of guy and really had a hard time letting him go. And so as sort of a manipulative move to give to get him to get back in the wild hunt, he sided with one of their enemies. However, this backfired because his actions got his brother and Emma in deep trouble. As a consequence, I believe his brother Either his brother or Emma Carstairs was whipped. 
like in front of his eyes. And so that sort of really ended their relationship. Like they broke up because of that. And along the way, Kieran's memories got wiped. So he didn't remember that they broke up. And so as such, because, you know, he was still in love with Mark and still under the impression that they were still together, he served them and helped them out of loyalty. But Mark purposefully kept the fact that they had broken up from him in order to keep his loyalty. Essentially, the reason why those two do not work out together with as a couple is because the communication just is terrible and they are incredibly toxic. I wouldn't say toxic, but I, I feel like on their own, they're both immature, very immature. And don't really know how to function well in a relationship. And I mean, speaking of memory wipes, I mean, it's been proven that that's not necessarily the best course of action. Because going back to Sailor Moon, they do several memory wipes. And it never ends well. It Yeah, it really it does really it. It doesn't. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in, uh, in the second book, Lord of Shadows, uh, when Kieran finds out, you know, that they had broken up when he gets some of his memories back because of course he has to find out, you know, he feels incredibly betrayed and, you know, Kieran is on you know the verge of just turning his back on Mark and all of the Blackthorns. It is Christina who sort of helps him to understand the motives and to keep the peace. Um, she sort of convinces him to at least stick around for a little while, but the two decide, you know, at the end of the second book that, you know, once he's done repaying his debt to the Blackthorns, he, they would be done with each other. And so here's where Christina comes in. Because honestly, Christina could do better than neither of them. Let's be honest. <laughs> so Christina Rosales is, you know, a bit of a diplomat. Um, she comes from a very important Shadowhunter family and has trained since she was very young to be a bridge between the Shadowhunters and the fairies. She's been fascinated by fairy culture, and her family has a long history with the courts. Yeah, once uh, Mark and Kieran are kind of done with each other, you know, Mark is free to explore their romantic relationship. But again, Kieran gets very, very jealous. When Kieran essentially uh, decides to become loyal to, you know, Mark the Blackthorns, and the Rosaleses, or essentially to the Los Angeles Institute, he has to make a pledge of loyalty because they're fairies. And so a pledge is kind of akin to like a magical contract. When he makes a pledge of loyalty, he swore fealty to Christina in a bid to spite Mark. But again, as they began to spend time together and work together, he found himself moving past his own feelings of jealousy and resentment toward her and began to see her as she was, as Mark saw her. He found himself respecting and admiring Christina. He found her warmth, her kindness, her strength and will to be rather admirable. And as time passed, he began to fall in love with her as well. And this is a quote from the last book that really encapsulates why Kieran and Mark admire and love Christina. Kieran called you a princess of the Nephilim, and rightly so. You are one of the best examples of our people I've ever known. Shining, righteous, and virtuous. You are all the good things that that I could think of, and all the good things I would like to be, and know I never can. I do not want you to do anything that later you would regret. I do not want you 
to later realize how far down from your standards you reached when you reached for me. Why the three of them work together is because Christina sort of acts as a bridge. She's the one that sort of brings everyone together, is, you know, not only the glue of the relationship, but also of just most team dynamics as well. Actually, towards the end of the series, Kieran was faced with a dilemma. He had to become the Unseelie King, but in order to become the Unseelie King, he had to give up his mortal consorts. And that was very conflicting for him because he fell in love with both Christina and Mark and, you know, really didn't want to have to walk away from that relationship. So he tried to beg one of his brothers into taking the throne instead. But again, as he slayed his father due to those rights, he had to be the one to rule. And so instead, his brother offered him a cottage outside of the Unseelie lands so that the all three of them could be together. Great loophole. Cottage. <laughs> cottage. Outside the warren. But now on to some less complicated stuff. <laughs> yes, Percy and Annabeth's relationship is far less complicated than either one of yours. In this series, you have the Greek gods that have come back into the realm, basically. So they're living in modern day times, they're having children, even though they're really not supposed to be. Um, and because of that fact, there's a camp that's created called Camp Half-Blood. And Percy Jackson is one of those children, and so is Annabeth Chase. Percy's dad is Poseidon, and Annabeth's mother is Athena. Which would make Percy Annabeth's uncle. I know, but we don't talk about that in this. <laughs> we don't talk about <laughs> we that. We don't talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about the fact that... Um... <laughs> Meeting the in-laws must have been interesting since they both hate each other. Oh, her mom was not happy. It was not good. There was a whole elevator scene. It was fantastic. (laughs) But they do explain in the books that, like, celestial parents have no genetic relation to each other. So, like, they have, like, a That's a bunch of dumb. I know. (laughs) But we don't talk about that. But theirs is by far the healthiest relationship in YA that I really have ever seen. Like, you know, they're they're great team members, they communicate really well, there's no toxic traits being passed back and forth. They're friends um, first. They're friends first. They meet when they're twelve years old and they start doing all these quests together and they learn how to kind of like balance each other out. And Annabeth is really the brains and Percy is the brawn, even though, you know, like she's really strong and he's really smart as well, but they do really work together well. Yeah, they fill in for where the other person kind of fails, so she has all of this logic and all of this wisdom, and you know he's more go with your gut feeling. So they work really well together, and that's why they're paired up a lot through the series. And through those pairings and through those quests, they fall in love and they become like a really great team. And this series also has a memory wipe, of course, because you have to have one. But unlike your guys's, he remembers Annabeth's name when his memory is wiped. It's the only thing he remembers, which, by the way, is amazing, and I love that so much. Uh, and when they're reunited after a pretty epic judo flip on Annabeth's part, they are reunited permanently. So that is that is nice. With no extra drama from them, it's just from outside forces. They are always very stable. It's the people around them. That usually get in the way, which is nice. Mm-hmm. It's a nice change of pace for most YA. They were almost this close to being involved in the love triangle, too. Oh my god, they were so close, man. So close. Oh, so close. On, ma- on many occasions. On many, yeah, like, on many occasions there was a third person that was interested in one of them, or both of them, mm-hmm. and 
on every occasion, Percy and Anna both were like, no thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no thanks. This is this some is of those people. Well, you've got Cersei. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the big one. And then you've got Reyna. Mm-hmm. And you've got you've got Nico. You have to love Nico, but so close to my ship being realized. Percy no. and Annabeth are perfect for each other, and Will and Nico belong together. Part of me did what <laughs> Nico and Percy. Just a small he's part. Like, he's like his big brother. I mean, technically, they're cousins. <laughs> they're all cousins. They're all related. <laughs> but it is an an epic and healthy relationship. I mean, there are some hiccups, though. Like, yeah. there are some hiccups, especially when it comes to the arc with the Golden Fleece. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of secret keeping when it comes to that. There is. Well, and you have to keep in mind, throughout most of the series, Annabeth is keeping the secret of the prophecy to herself, because mm-hmm. she knows it. Mm-hmm. So, but, but I think that just shows how great they are together, because they can both make mistakes and keep secrets and argue but at the end of the day you know they can come together and work together and work it out and yeah, they don't just yeah. you know hold it against one another forever and mind you when the golden fleece thing happened they were like 13 yeah they were really young <laughs> yeah, and then later on i mean their relationship is even used as almost like an example in other um, mm-hmm. series with magnus chase he meets up with percy i, I can't remember exactly how that happens but he meets up with Percy and they're helping him like learn to like get over some fears with water and things like that. And anytime Percy is meeting up with Magnus or whatever, it's always like, oh yeah, Annabeth's doing this and we're doing that later. And it's it's never like he's at that point in his relationship where you're just like, okay, so you guys are married now, right? Because it's they're a we and it's no longer a me. They're, they're a unit. unit. Yeah. <laughs> And I think you can see the growth between both Percy and Annabeth from, like, the lightning thief to, like, the trials of Apollo. When people meet them and see them, they're very intimidated by them or they accidentally Mm -hmm. get mistaken for gods. And I think, you know, a lot of that confidence comes from the fact that they know that they're a team and, you know, they've got each other's backs. Out of all the couples that we've talked about today, I would definitely say that Percy and Annabeth exemplify the term power couple oh yeah oh my gosh yeah yes even grover calls them a power couple yeah. at one mm-hmm. point well and they they managed to be a team of three without ever third wheeling grover which yeah. i think is really unique well i mean grover has his own exploits yeah but... so i think that helps <laughs> true he does like vanish for a book or two looking for pan yeah. so i guess that's true and, and it has Juniper. He does. And that's cute. That's a cute little it's pair. It's an adorable relationship. And I guess, I guess Luke would have been like another almost love triangle too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I totally, I forgot about Luke. Oof. I was about to bring him up. Whoops. I know. I could like see it in your eyes. And I was like, oh no, I forgot Luke. Like, don't forget the son of Hermes. Oh my god, no. But that's unrequited Sort of. Uh, no, because she has a huge crush on him throughout, like, the first I mean, first yeah, but she has a huge crush on him. But yeah, he but. comes back at the end and asks her to leave with him. Yeah. And she says, she turns him down. Which, yeah. she doesn't tell Percy until, like, Hermes brings it up. Yeah. So, they know they're better together. Mm-hmm. And That's true. And you can see they know they're better together because in one of, 
I think it's in the Labyrinth one. They're only supposed to bring like three people and she, or like two people, and she brings like three or something like that because she knows they have to be together. So I think it's good to know who you're strongest with. I think that's a good mark of a healthy relationship. Yes. But of course we, you know, have to bring up the, you know, love of an age that, you know, didn't get talked about. The swords, of course. <laughs> oh my god. The truest love story of them all. Forget Percy Annabeth. <laughs> Forget Sailor Moon and Mamoru. Oh, man. The swords? Oh my gosh. I mean, if we're going to go that route, we also need to talk about Artemis and Luna. Well, we need to talk about the snakes. <laughs> oh, yes! <laughs> what is it, like George and... Martha? Martha? Something like that. that. They, their snark is pretty epic. Mm-hmm. Great banter. Mm-hmm. They communicate well. They do Which is great because well. Charmese does rule communication. Well, they have to communicate. They're on the same pole. Forever. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's taking that uh, till death do us part to a whole new level there. They are literally <laughs> twisted together. <laughs> well... As much as I would love to go off on all these tangents we just mentioned, I think that brings us to an end for episode 44, the Valentine's Day special. So this has been Emily, Sierra, and Haley, and we are signing off.